I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Welcome again to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we talk about the biggest undiscussed issue in the body of Christ, that despite all we have and know, it can feel like there is something missing in our faith experience. I have had so many signs and indicators in the last two weeks that this episode needed to be about prayer. And so that is what I'm going to do. In this episode, we are going to delve deep into this topic and hopefully you come out realizing and seeing some things that you didn't notice about prayer before. You know, it seems rather pointless asking the question, what is prayer? Because prayer is quite a straightforward concept, right? Well, I can assure you that there is plenty missing in our perception of prayer, even if we understand it conceptually. But for the sake of consistency, I can tell you that prayer is basically the format by which we talk with God. The specific meaning of the word prayer is to beseech, in other words, to earnestly ask, seek or request. Of course, all of our prayers aren't simply a request. Prayer is a way in which we can simply share our thoughts to God and share our heart with God. We can praise him. We can repent. So it is certainly varied, but the writers of scripture appeared to pray with the purpose of earnestly seeking God. There are lots of attributes of prayer that we can glean from scripture. So let's consider them. Firstly, prayer is first and foremost private. Jesus in Matthew 6 verse 6 tells us that when we pray, we are to go into our room, close the door and pray to our father who is unseen. Now that doesn't mean that prayer is always private, of course, because we see in Acts that the believers did pray together. But first and foremost, it is something that we do alone with God, just as Jesus often prayed by himself. Number two, prayer is a place where we share our needs. In Matthew 6 verse 8, Jesus makes this interesting statement whilst contrasting the prayerful practices of the pagans. He says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Yes, this statement is addressing the fact that we don't need to babble and repeat ourselves over and over thinking that this might influence God's desire to grant our wish like the pagans used to do. But underlying this statement is a suggestion that God intends for us to pray for our needs. He expects that we would ask in prayer for our needs to be met. This can be seen in the Lord's Prayer also, where Jesus asks the Father to give us each day our daily bread. So whether physical, emotional or psychological needs, prayer is a place where we can request that he meet those needs. Number three. Prayer is a continual and open conversation. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it says, pray continually. It's as simple as that. Prayer doesn't have to be something that finishes when we say amen. It can be a continual open conversation with God. I am constantly praying in my head and talking to God. It's a habit that I began as a kid. Number four, prayer is powerful. This is probably the most common aspect of prayer that we hear about in Christian circles. James 5.16 says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's where we get this idea from. This is actually a fascinating and mysterious aspect of prayer. Prayer, which we generally consider to be a conversation between you and God, takes on this offensive, weapon-like nature, able to affect, influence, and impact. 
It would be unusual for us to think of any human-to-human interactions and conversations in this way, especially conversations that are intended to produce intimacy. It is such a unique feature of prayer, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more later on. Number five, we can make all kinds of requests in prayer. Ephesians 6.18 tells us to pray all kinds of prayers and requests. There really aren't any limitations on prayer in this way. We can do it at any time, all the time, and about anything. Number six, we are to pray that we won't fall into temptation. In John 17, Jesus actually prays for the disciples and he prays for all of us. One of the topics is protection from the enemy. It is also a feature of the Lord's prayer that we would not be led into temptation. Number seven, we are to pray for our enemies. Yep, this would be a hard one these days. We know that the world has shifted into this very intense period of labeling, which I don't really have an opinion of, except for the fact that I am sometimes worried about my capacity to keep up with the new terminology. But there is a lot more labeling, like victim shaming or misogynist or patriarchy, colonialism, white privilege, and many, many more. And Christians participate in this too. Now, I'm not raising this to make some comment on the rightness or wrongness of this pattern, because as much as I hear Christians pointing the finger at this behavior in criticism, we are just as guilty of the labeling. Oh, they're not spirit-filled. They are Baptist. They are Anglican. They are Pentecostal. They are Baptocostal. They don't believe in submission. They are a Calvinist. They are liberal. They are conservative. We have our own labels too that we've been using for a long, long time. The point is these labels can often produce this image of enemy lines or even just the us and them. Maybe it's not always that extreme. Like I don't think the Baptocostals hate the Pentecostals, for instance, but the division makes us think that God is on our side only when actually God is saying, pray for your enemies. Pray for those you think are in opposition to you. Like, I don't think there are a lot of Christian feminists praying for people they would deem Christian misogynists. Just saying. And I don't think there are many white Christian men that don't believe women should preach that are praying specifically for women, besides maybe their own wives or daughters. And whilst there may not be hate between them, I don't think that many conservatives are praying for liberalists except for asking God to change them. If we really want to take Jesus's words seriously, we ought not to stand on the verses we claim and use when discussing our opinions and fail to follow the directions of the verses that teach us how to live with those who disagree with us. We can be quite guilty of compartmentalizing the word like that. Number eight, there is a mysterious relationship between prayer, confession, and healing. Yeah, so I actually get a little excited talking about this one because I want to understand it more and I want to study it more. See, in James 5.16, again, it also says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This verse is saying that there is this relationship between prayer and confession and healing. It's almost like the author is saying that confession plus prayer for each other equals healing. 
Now, I can certainly see how this is true when it comes to emotional healing. I've seen it myself when I was a counsellor. And certainly when I have run some small groups, I've seen people break out of these old patterns and be healed because of vulnerability, friendship and prayer. So here is the other thing. This verse isn't only talking about sins. Confession also means to acknowledge to acknowledge what is going on in our heart, to acknowledge our fears, to acknowledge our mistakes. So to do this with each other and to pray for each other provides a pretty good chance for God to heal us. It's exciting, right? Okay, so I've kind of launched straight in this time, but why is all of this so significant? Why do we need to talk about prayer? Well, there are a few issues that we have with prayer that might be prohibiting our experience of it. Firstly, we have sometimes turned prayer into a performance. I'll be the first to say that it is really nice to listen to someone pray who has great articulation. And these people are often called prayer warriors and they get asked to get up and pray at church or prayer meetings, and that's all well and good, except that it paints a picture that prayer is done in a certain way and it needs to sound a certain way. Now, I know so many people who are too shy to pray because they are concerned about the judgment that would get pronounced over them if their praying style wasn't quite up to scratch. Now, if there is a possibility that my praying style is stopping other people from praying or causing them to feel self-conscious, I would shut my mouth. I would rather that everyone is praying rather than one person because they sound good. Okay, look, the significance of prayer is not in how it's done or in how it sounds. Even if someone prays the same mundane prayer every day, it is no different in value to the powerful sound of a Bishop T.D. Jake's prayer. God listens still the same. He answers according to his will, not according to the sound of the prayer or the choice of the words. In fact, if he was going to prefer any prayers, he probably prefers whichever prayer is the most sincerest, like the prayer of a child. A sincere prayer has nothing to do with pitch, language, loudness, or the number of words. A sincere prayer could be, help me, Lord. I mean, consider Luke 18, verse 10 to 14, where Jesus tells this story. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. Hashtag boom, my friends. Number two, we have statements that conflict with our ability to keep our prayers sincere. You know, when I was growing up as a young adult, I was very confused by this statement that I would hear from time to time. It was, watch your confession. 
So I believe it means be careful with what you say because words have this creative power. So if you confess something negative, you will create that negative thing. Now, I have a pretty intense imagination and I have to admit, I would often imagine that some little demon would grab those words and go, yippee, because she said it, I can now make it happen, you know, with a golem voice, of course, which I clearly can't do. But why does it matter more what I say than what I think? If I say I am successful, but I feel like an utter failure, how is that helpful? Are we seriously that afraid of the enemy and his minions that we would knowingly create inner dissonance? So yeah, this has never quite made sense to me. This is a really confusing and conflicting concept. How can we be honest with God and be earnest in our prayers if we are more worried about what the enemy is doing, especially when offering such earnest prayers to God like healing? Like, heal us, God. I mean, how do we put ourselves before God like that and be so cautious with our words that the enemy can do something with them? I'm still confused. You can see I'm not even making sense in how I describe this. I find it so confusing and I actually think it is a barrier to us being able to pray sincerely. All right, number three, we have often decided that prayer is for certain people. Of course, intercessors feel a burden to pray, and I would go so far to say that it is a part of their calling to the body of Christ to pray. But sometimes we can think that prayer is for the intercessors and not for the rest of us, you know, the doers. There is nothing to suggest in Scripture that prayer is not for every believer. It is not based on how busy you are or what calling you have. We are all meant to pray. We are all meant to cultivate this kind of relationship with God. You know, Paul was a busy man, but there is so much evidence that he was constantly praying. Jesus was a busy man, and yet he prayed at least 25 times in the Gospels that we are aware of. And it was probably a lot more than that, especially when you read verses that say he would often slip away and pray in Luke 5.16. He once prayed all night. Now, I've done that once and it is hard work. Jesus also once prayed for so long that the disciples kept falling asleep while waiting for him. Now, maybe they have at least one of them was that type of person who could just fall asleep anyway. I can't stand you people. But for sure, it would have been harder for them to fall asleep. Think about the fact that we have cushy couches and cozy beds. They were like on ground and like, okay, grass can sometimes be comfortable. But anyway, I'm hugely digressing. The point is, again, prayer is for every believer. Okay, so let's go a little deeper. See, there is something you have to know about prayer. We have this promise that should blow our minds every time we think about it. When we pray, he listens. And not like most spouses from behind an iPhone scrolling through Facebook or Instagram. God is attentive. He has heard even the things we haven't said that we don't know how to say. 1 Peter 3 verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. 
Proverbs 15 verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Psalm 34 verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Isaiah 65 24, before they call, I will answer. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Psalm 18 verse 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ear. Jeremiah 33 verse 3, call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. I love that one. What a promise. Psalm 145 verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And there is literally so much more that I haven't even touched on if you ever wanted to explore this for yourself. It is one of the most valuable promises we have in God. Nothing we say is dead or forgotten. Every prayer is heard and tabled. Even the prayers we forget about, he does not forget. He hears us. Just think about how crazy this is and what a wonderful miracle. When I speak, my words arrive at the ears of the creator of this universe. I have an audience with the King of Kings every time I open my mouth in prayer. Yeah, even when I'm in the shower or I'm on the toilet, that's actually absurd, but it is true. He has made sure that we are not confused on this matter or that there would be some theological debate on the interpretation of this. This idea isn't clouded by contextual issues or difficulties with application. Even if what you are saying is totally messed up, doctrinally questionable, or you've said it a thousand times, you don't need to be a theologian to know this. God listens to you every word, every time. Okay, you should know by now what I'm about to do. I'm going to ask this question. How does this relate to this sense of something is missing in our faith? In Matthew 21, verse 13, Jesus has just walked into the temple courts and found people buying and selling products. He says, It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This is a reference to Isaiah 56, 7, where there is this prophetic declaration that the temple would one day become a place for all nations. And boy, is that significant. And boy, is that exciting. But... That is not the only significant factor in this statement. He is saying that we, the collective of believers that make up the temple of the Holy Spirit, we shall be a house of prayer. Prayer is supposed to be this defining hallmark of the church. In reality, there is not that much information about how a church is supposed to function in Scripture. There is a lot about how we are supposed to treat each other, how we are supposed to love each other, but there's not necessarily a great deal about what is supposed to happen in church. And yet there's this. Prayer is one aspect that we can be confident is supposed to be a part of our DNA, both as the church and as his people. 
So from my observations, it would not be accurate to say that the church is a house of prayer. There are plenty of people who pray, don't get me wrong, and there are plenty of calls to prayer like national prayer days and and things like that. But we would still struggle to say that we live up to this declaration that Jesus made. Most churches are quite similar when it comes to prayer. There is some type of corporate prayer meeting every three months. There's prayer meetings before every service and there's ministry time after the service and maybe a midweek gathering for prayer. The corporate prayer meetings might be, you know, a quarter of the church or maybe even a third if you're doing well, right? Prayer meetings before the service are usually all about the service and they might be between five or 20 minutes just depending on the church. Ministry time is obviously for specific needs of individuals in the church and the midweek prayer gathering will usually only be the really serious prayers. Now, I say all of this to say we are a few rungs short of a house of prayer. It's an area for great improvement. Now, I recognise that people pray at home too, but I can't imagine that the number of people praying would be grossly different to these proportions because you, like, will make some accommodations for that which you value, right? Now, I don't want to get legalistic about it, like when people assume that people who don't turn up to church don't love God, like that can be a little bit legalistic. But what I'm trying to say is that there probably isn't any reason to think that people's approach to prayer would be diametrically different at home than it is corporately, at least in principle. What this all really tells me, though, is that we don't really get prayer. We don't really think it's that powerful. We don't think it's more powerful than worship. We don't think it's more powerful than the word being preached. And we definitely don't think it's more powerful than getting stuff done, which we will talk more about later. Surely we are missing something about prayer if we think that it is secondary when Jesus said it was primary. You know, recently I shared a post on Instagram that said revival has begun. You know, so like six months ago, I had a dream in which I heard uh, this statement being said to me and I was announcing it to others. Now, I truly believe that revival has already begun. The Holy Spirit has been causing many to sift through their faith, to look deeper at what is the substance of their faith and be restored in this deeper relationship with Christ. It's like a personal revival first. Every Christian I speak to has been going through so much in the last two years, processing, piecing together, stripping away. It's actually incredible and it's all coordinated by God. So here's the thing. I've had these books on my shelf for ages, like years and years and years, and I happened to be looking for something to read the other day and I just grabbed randomly this book and began reading it and it was all about revivals. Imagine my shock when I realised that prayer is a really significant factor in pretty much all revivals. A significant number of revivals have started out of prayer meetings So many have started from a small group of individuals or even just one person getting down on their knees and praying. It hasn't been because of the right combo of worship songs or well-handled transitions. It hasn't happened because a preacher had a great, shareable and memorable catchphrase. It hasn't happened because the lighting was on point. None of these factors 
were in a revival. No, when his people humble themselves and acknowledge their own inability to do what God can, when they pray with sincerity, that is the greatest factor in the likelihood of revival beginning. And it doesn't even take a lot. Just a few people, just one person. That person could be me. That person could be you. Now, I don't believe that revival is the be-all and end-all of faith either. It is not necessarily what we are supposed to be aiming for. Our purpose is to make and become disciples that run the race with increasing obedience and alignment with Jesus. But it is interesting to consider prayer from this angle as an obviously defining factor in the Holy Spirit moving in power. It gives life to the verse 2 Chronicles 7.14 that says, Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. This is for us today. It is us that must be humble, us that must pray and seek his face, us that must repent for our faith and reliance on other means to bring change to this world, for putting our faith in political giants and church growth strategies and leadership principles as though they alone can do what only God can. This verse reminds us that what we really need if we want to see his spirit move upon the earth and transform it is to be a people that gets down on our knees and prays and acknowledges our mistakes. Then, then will he respond and act. So let's just go deeper again. It's clear that prayer is so much more significant than we understand. We can see enough in scripture that suggests that prayer can change entire situations, entire nations even. So why isn't it a higher priority? What is standing in our way? This is what I've worked out. Through my own prayer time, through my own seeking God, we still think that the most significant thing we could do is act. Because when we do something, we feel like we are getting somewhere. We feel the momentum. It convinces us that we can change the atmosphere. This is counterintuitive to the mindset required to pray. Prayer says God will act and that his actions, though I might not be able to hear or see it immediately, is far more significant than anything I or any human can do. See, we don't realise it, but as a society, we really value action. We like leaders that are the take action kind of people. We're inspired by people who can get things done. We're excited when we see things happening. We look at high capacity people with sparkly eyes, wishing we could achieve everything they are and presume that this is the vision that God has for all of us. But as believers, it is not our capability that is the most significant factor in what is released and accomplished on this earth. It isn't really what I am capable of that makes a difference in whether good things happen in and around me. Don't get me wrong, there is a time for action, but there is always a time for prayer. 
Lately, I've heard about a few situations that have really stirred up this righteous anger in me, you know, and whilst I've been praying, I've been crying out to God saying, send me, send me, because I'm not really satisfied with just praying. I want to be a part of the solution. But unfortunately, no path has opened up for me to do anything. And it's been really frustrating. What it has done, though, is it has caused me to ask this question. Why don't I believe that my prayers, my most sincere and honest prayers, are equal in value to anything I could do? Why don't I believe that prayer is enough? Why do I think it lacks something in comparison to me getting my hands dirty? Because the truth is that my prayers are probably of greater value than anything I could do. When I act to a degree, I am mainly influencing the specific realm, the time and the place that I find myself in when I do that act. For example, There are so many people who want to be preachers, right? And I'm sure many of them have a legitimate calling to preach, and that is fantastic. But there is a good chance that when I preach a sermon, I can only really impact a handful of people's lives, the few people that are really paying attention. And that's if they decide that what I have said is a worthy message, if it's also applicable to their life and their situation, if it's memorable enough, if they're likely to remember it when they leave the congregation, if it is something they haven't heard before, and if it's also clear to them what they can do with that message. I don't know about you, but there is a lot of ifs in that equation. But when an earnest prayer is offered in faith, it can travel beyond times and generations, beyond locations, and beyond the ordinary limitations that we would accept as commonplace. Prayer gains access to spaces and places that nobody else can. I will probably never meet the President of the United States or walk into the private spaces that he inhabits, but I don't have to because prayer gives me access. I can pray that God would speak to him in the middle of the night when no other audience has his attention. I can pray that God would show him visions of him and his plan. I can pray that God would keep prompting him in a way that he can't rest until he acknowledges his voice. I can ask God to rally his angels to minister in places that I can't and I wouldn't even see when I walk down the street. I can pray that God would eradicate every risk of domestic violence and sexual abuse in my suburb because there is no limitation on what I can pray and what God can do with that prayer. I can be sitting on my little cheap green chair with a broken cup of coffee in my pyjamas with not a single person in this world giving me a thought, with boring, inarticulate prayers, praying for the salvation of an entire country across the other side of the globe and actually believe that it could happen. Prayer is not a last resort, friends. Prayer is the starting point of it all. It's not just a conversation, and praise God that we can talk to him too, but it is a continual invitation to him to act. God loves to do. He loves to act by creating and healing and restoring, and he will do it whether we ask for it or not. But relationally, it brings him great joy 
when we keep inviting him into our world and the world of others because we've trusted him enough to ask. We pray because we love him and we love allowing God to be God. It also happens to be the most intimate place we can share with God. Is it really a surprise that the most powerful thing in God's eyes is the most relationally intimate and humble action we could take? Should it surprise us that he has created this innate potential at the heart of an action, i.e. prayer, that first and foremost is the birthplace of intimacy and connection? No, it really should not surprise us at all that God's goodness is released across this earth every day because of conversations with his children that are saturated in love and fellowship. Prayer is powerful because God is powerful. We cannot separate our understanding of prayer from the one whom we pray to. When we do or don't pray, it tells us so much about what we think of the one we pray to. When I don't pray, I have reduced my comprehension of his capabilities. When I pray about everything, I lift the image of him to the place where God is God, where he can create something out of nothing. I am declaring that his reign is of supreme importance to me. I am declaring that his will shall be done, not mine. How we relate to him in prayer says a lot about how we really view him. Just like all of our other relationships, who I decide to be vulnerable with says a lot about what I expect of that person. When I decide to hold myself back, it says a lot about what I expect to receive, if I were honest. We can't separate the nature of our communication from our perception of the person hearing. Well, I hope that I've actually expanded some of your thoughts on prayer and convinced you that it is something worth doing. But I just want to give you this final thought. If there was anyone who could have afforded to not pray, it was Jesus, and yet he did regularly. In John 17, we get to hear exactly what our Saviour would consider worthy of praying for. And lo and behold, he prays for you and I. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What an incredible prayer. Jesus's greatest desire is that we would be one with him. This is the ultimate level of intimacy, perfectly united in love. We are still benefiting from this prayer thousands of years on. Every person who says yes to him has the opportunity to grow in perfect unity with him and receive every blessing that this kind of intimacy would bring. So with all we now know and have considered about prayer in this episode, I ask you, what could happen on this earth 
if every believer really prayed? What could happen? What impossible barriers could be removed? What previously impenetrable strongholds could be broken if we all just got down on our knees and prayed? Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.